Well, can you open your Bibles, please, at Ephesians chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, and let us just look to the Lord for His help and guidance. Gracious, eternal, heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for the reading of Thy Word and this wonderful letter written to that congregation there at the city of Ephesus. And Lord, we can only imagine of how exhilarated and excited and encouraged they would have been as this letter was read to them. But Lord, we thank Thee it's also to us today. And it has a special relevance to a congregation. And we think this morning as the congregation here in Dromore meets, that Lord, that I would bless this passage to each heart gathered, for it's in Christ's name we'd ask it. Amen. It is, as I said, my privilege to be asked by Presbytery to help in this congregation until you come to the place where you're able to call a teaching elder to be your minister in the work of God here. And just being here at a few meetings, I do commend your office bearers and you individual members for your dedication to unitedly serve the Lord in this congregation. This church was commenced many years ago because there were a group of people in this area who were concerned for the glory of God. And that's why the work commenced. It is consolidated and continued until this day. And now, with the call to the Reverend Foster to go to the Mourn congregation, you're now in a state, you could say, of transition, another milestone in your history. And so in this first Lord's Day, when your minister has gone on to still serve the Lord in another part of our denomination, I want to bring a text that I trust will be an encouragement to you as a congregation as you think of the days ahead. The words of our text are seven very important words. You'll find them in chapter 3. In verse 21, unto him be glory in the church. Unto him be glory in the church. Notice the words in the church. That's the place you assemble. That's the place you assemble. Now, we're not talking about the building here, the physical building. To most people, when you say the word church, they think of a certain building. Oh, I pass by that church. Well, that is not technically, of course, exact. I'm sure you all know that, but just to emphasize it, the church, this is the meeting house. This is where the Dromore church meets in this building. But the verse is not talking about a building of bricks and mortar. Because a congregation is just as much a congregation if it meets here in a lovely building, and what a lovely building you have. Or, as happened in Clocker Valley, where I was once minister, it began the first Lord's Day under a tree, because the building they'd hoped to meet in was refused. That was just as much the place. That was just as much a church. So the church, we're, we're talking about the people, the church. Well, what is the church? Well, we've already seen, I mentioned to you in chapter 3, it's the family of God. Thank God I'm a part of the family of God. But if you read the book of Ephesians, you'll find that Paul uses pictures. He'll say in chapter 5 that the church is the body of Christ. 
we're all members. You think of body, fingers, toes. We're members. We're united together, and Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. And then he'll talk about it being a bride. Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, the church, is the bride of Christ. And Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But then, the picture of a building, a building. Again, not talking about the bricks and mortar, but the congregation in Dromore, do you realize you're a building? And when you were converted and came to join the church, you were put into a spiritual building. We can't see it with the naked eye, but God is building a temple in this area of our province. Turn back to chapter 2. We'll see what we're talking about here. Paul is writing to them, when you've come and trusted Christ, this is what happens to you. Your sins were forgiven, yes, but that's only one thing that happened to you. Over in chapter 2, if you look there in verse 20, this is you, Christian, chapter 2, 20, and are built, see the word built, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Those, those verses are tremendous. Surely you know that in the Old Testament, God had a special building in which his people worshipped, the tabernacle and the temple. I'll not be able to be at the prayer meeting this week because tonight I commence a week of meetings in our Portland own congregation on that very subject. The tabernacle was booked from away last year. I'll be in Macrofelt later in the month on a different subject. But the tabernacle was a building in which his people worshipped. And the glory of God came down in that tabernacle, Exodus 40. Later on, when the temple was built under Solomon, built on the same scale, as it were, plan, holy place, and so on, holiest of all. The same thing happened. The glory of God, the Spirit of God came and filled that building. Now, here's what Paul's saying in chapter 2. You're a spiritual building. In this New Testament age, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, as Stephen said in Acts 7. He dwells among the gathering of his people. And there is a special presence of the Holy Spirit when his people gather especially on the Lord's day. God dwells everywhere, we know that. But in a special sense, when you gather with other believers in a church, the Holy Spirit's there to speak and to bless. You might need me to profess Christian, oh, well, I don't worship anywhere, I just worship at home. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Because when you gather with others in the church, the Holy Spirit's there in a special way. You read 1 Corinthians. Even think of this passage. And what's Paul talking about here? You see, when the Ephesians heard those verses, Ephesians 2, 20 to 22, they would have been shocked. They would have been stunned. They would have been absolutely startled. Why? Well, let me give you a little bit of Ephesus. Some years ago, I had the privilege three times to go to Singapore to preach for the Reverend uh, Dr. Ferguson. Some of you know him. And uh, they paid us out to take a, a week's camp. When he called me once and said a camp, I imagine tense, but what happens? The whole congregation go from Monday to Friday to a hotel. It's their holiday. 
they all holiday together, children, adults, everyone, twice in Malaysia, once in Indonesia. And you preach in the morning subjects to them. It was a great joy to be there. But on one occasion, Dr. Ferguson said, we're booking your ticket, but through Turkish Airlines. And take the trouble to stop off in Turkey. And so we did, and then we paid and all from there to see Ephesus. My wife and I have been here. We're reading about the Christians in the city of Ephesus. It's absolutely stunning. Some of you may have been there. You'll tell me afterwards. It's amazing. The ruins. We actually walked on the same steps, the same pavement that the Apostle Paul walked. We, you can see the amphitheater where in Acts 19 you'll read Paul was taken by the mob. It's still there. You can still sit. We saw the streets. Saw a library. You see a few of the walls still standing. It's amazing to think that that's where the Apostle Paul ministered in the church there at Ephesus. But they take you to the side and there's just a few pillars. That's where the temple of Diana was. Do you know in the ancient world, one of the wonders of the world was the temple of the goddess Diana. Remember in Acts 19, 28, there was an uproar and all the city cried, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Do you know back in those days when Paul was living, People, wealthy people would travel to Ephesus just to see that magnificent temple. Magnificent temple. So the Gentiles knew what a temple was. Ah, but the Jewish Christians in the church, mostly Gentiles, many of them had been slaves, and were still slaves. You Jews in the congregation, and they would remember the beautiful temple at Jerusalem built to the glory of Jehovah. But you know something? Both those temples have long gone. They've long gone. They're no more. Now those people would have known what a temple, what a building was. But what Paul is saying to them, look, forget about those glorious, earthly, magnificent structures. You are part of a spiritual building. And that's a wonderful privilege this morning. To more free Presbyterian temple, if you like. A spiritual building for the Lord. And it says in those verses, he's still building it. Still building it. So if you're not saved this morning, you can be part of it. You can be part of that structure. I love the word here. If you look at it closely, it says, of whom the building, fitly framed together. Not a nice expression, verse 21. Fitly framed together. Do you know in the original it's one word? One word in the Greek, quite rightly translated into three in our English, to give the meaning. You know the word. You've used it. Especially you, you who are interested in music. Harmony. That's, that's the word that's used here, the word we get harmony from. It was used of builders, you builders, and they would take two stones out of the quarry and they would put them together harmoniously in the building. That's what the word means. God is calling out of people and he's building a spiritual, we are living stones, Peter calls believers, and he's building it harmoniously. We're fitly framed together. The Lord puts us, puts us in his church as he designs. As he designs. That's the meaning of that term. It groweth unto in verse 21. You can become part of it. And then it says church. How do you become part of this spiritual temple? 
Well, think of the word church. Again, that's a word that I say that's often misunderstood. Here's what it simply means. You've heard the word ecclesiastical. Well, that's the word church. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. What's that? It's the word to call. To call. That's all it means. But to put a little prefix, and you've seen the prefix, EX, you know, an exit. That's the prefix. X, call. What is the church when you read in verse 21 our text? The church. The called out ones. The called out ones. That's how you get into the church. You respond to the call of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit works in your life to convict you of your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, out of the mass of humanity, God has called you to himself. We could go into chapter 1 and do a series. He called us even before we were born, before the foundation of the world. He called us to Christ. He called us out of the world. He called us to holiness. We're the called ones. So this morning, think of your congregation, Gabor Free Presbyterian. You're a spiritual building. And you have the privilege of being in this building and to gather and to know the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church, the called out ones unto the Lord. Now, unredeemed people can meet today. And they may meet in what they call a church gathering. But it's not. They can call it whatever they want. But it's not a New Testament church. Why not? Because they're not redeemed. They're just religious people who feel they ought to go and give God something. But they're not saved. They haven't seen their sin. They haven't been born again by the Spirit of God. It's not a church. Thank God we're meeting in a church today. Again, I'm not talking about this physical building, but we're meeting with people who have been saved. The call that there's the place we assemble. I want you to notice, secondly, in the text, chapter 321, not only the place we assemble, the person we adore, unto him. Why are we here today? Well, here's the main reason we ought to come. Main reason we ought to come, unto him. Unto him. That's the purpose of our gathering. We come to praise him. That's why I picked that opening hymn. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Great Jehovah three and one. If you want a little something to do this afternoon, go through chapter one. You pick out the verses and you know what you'll find three times in chapter one. Paul launches forth into praise and he praises God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You'll find it in chapter one. We're here unto him, unto Almighty God. Why? For who he is. Think of who the Savior is, the fairest of 10,000 to her soul. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the altogether lovely one. He's all so many names and titles of our blessed Savior. Oh, when we think of who he is, when we think of who Almighty God is in the Trinity, that's why we're met together. Unto him. For who he is. We're here the person we adore this morning. Why? Because what he's done for us. What he's done for us. I take it you know chapter Ephesians. How it begins. In chapter 2. You, you hath he quickened made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Chapter 2 and 1. 
He's writing to the church members and he's saying, you were just like everybody else. You were dead in sins. Not only were you a sinner condemned, and the end of verse 3 says that, the children of wrath, even as others. But I'm emphasizing the word dead, dead. We were dead, verse 5, and even when we were dead. You see, we were depraved, we were deluded, we were doomed, just like everybody else. And with no spiritual life. There's a saying when I was growing up in Belfast, I don't know if you had it here in Dromore, we're all, we're all baked in the same bowl, or bowl you might say here. What does it mean? We're all sinners. We have nothing to be proud of in ourselves. We're just sinners. We're just sinners. In America, we went there, they had a different saying. We're all made out of the same cookie dough. We're all sinners. And this is the, these are church members. You were dead. You could do nothing to save yourself. Ah, but I love verse 4 of chapter 2. But God. not wonderful? But God. And in verse 5, he quickened us. He made us alive. By grace you are saved. Oh, thank God of what he's done for us. He's made us new creatures in Christ. Unto him, the person we adore, because of who he is, because of what he's done for us, because of what he is doing for us. I love the verse that he's able to save to the uttermost, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. That word uttermost there is the idea of continually. Continually. He'll keep us saved. The Lord Jesus Christ lives to keep us saved. We don't keep ourselves. We're kept by the power of God. And at this very moment, do you know your Lord Jesus Christ is your high priest? And at this very moment, I'm speaking to those who know you're definitely saved. This very moment, your Lord is doing something for you. He's praying for you. You read John 17 to know what he's praying, the high priestly prayer. He's feeling with and for you. He empathizes with us. He's touched with a fellow feeling, it means, of our infirmities. In other words, when you weep, he weeps. That's what it means. Yes, he feels for you. When you're going through sorrow, he feels for you. I just said, and I hadn't intended, but I love the story of Queen Victoria. By the way, Queen Victoria's favorite hymn was, Oh, happy day that fixed my choice, and be my Savior and my God. That was her favorite hymn. On one occasion, she said she looked forward to the day when she'll take the crowns of the British Empire and cast it at her Savior's feet. But there's a lovely story of when a, a poor workman in one of her estates died in an accident. The royal carriage pulled up outside the little cottage. Of course, Prince Albert, her consort, had died some years before. And if you know, she went into deep mourning for some years. Uh, Albert Clark in Belfast, named after Prince Albert. So the Queen was mourning the loss of her husband. This lady had just lost her husband in an accident. And it says the carriage pulled up and Queen Victoria went into the little tiny house. And afterwards when she came out and the royal carriage left, all the neighbours were round. What did Her Majesty say to you? What did the Queen of the British Empire, when there was an empire, say to you? You know what the widow said? Nothing. Nothing? No. She just came room into the room and sat beside me and we both wept together. Both widows. We both wept together. 
Think of it. Royalty. Weeping with just a, a, a cottage, you know, little cottage. Workman's widow. Haha, <laughs> listen. There's something greater this morning, isn't it, for those believers who sorrow? The King of kings and Lord of lords weeps with us. That's what he's doing for us. He comes alongside. He succors us. He saves us. He succors us. He sympathizes with us. He's praying at this moment. You know what he's praying? Father, keep those believers and remore from the evil one. Father, I pray that those believers down in that spiritual building, that church and remore, Father, I pray that one day they'll be with me where I am and that they may share my glory. Isn't that wonderful? He's praying for you. You know another thing he's praying? You read John 17. Father, fulfill my joy in them. See, Christian joy isn't something you're sort of given. It's Christ. It's Christ, his joy. That's what the Father's praying for you at this moment. He's praying, Father, some of those believers and remore are going to be tempted this week. Father, support them. Isn't it wonderful, Peter? Remember the Lord said, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Do you ever think about this? Christ didn't say, Peter, you're tempted and have denied me, so I'll pray for you. Even before it happened, Christ was already praying for him. Hadn't happened yet, but the Lord knew it would happen because he's omniscient. Oh, the Lord is praying for you now. He's praying... Praise him, the person we adore because of who he is, what he's done for us, what he is doing for us, what he'll yet do for us. He's gone away to prepare a place for us. He's going to come again and bring us on to himself. You have the place we assemble, the church, the person we adore. Oh, it's the Lord, it's on to him. But look in the text as well. The praise you are to ascribe, be glory, be glory. You see, the purpose of a church and the purpose of our gathering today is not to showcase human talent. The church isn't about human egos. The church isn't about us. The church isn't about what I get out of it. You ever heard somebody say, I'm not getting much in that church, or I'm not getting, we don't come primarily to get. Now, there is a blessing when you meet with the people of God and hear the word of God. You will be encouraged. You will be blessed. You will be built up. But that's not the purpose. The purpose why we gather together is to give. To give the Lord the glory. That's why we gather. That's why we come. To give the Lord the glory that's due unto his name. And how do you glorify God? Well, I'll just give you two ways. By the preaching of the gospel and listening to the gospel. What is the greatest work that God has ever done that sets forth his glory in this greatest manifestation? It is Calvary and the gospel of salvation. All God does is glorious. My, this morning was a lovely morning. Went for a short walk about 8 o'clock this morning. It was lovely. And Moira, the domain there, lovely place. Go walk. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation sets forth the glory of God. But I'm saying the cross, the gospel. And that's why we meet, we preach Christ crucified. For that is the greatest work of God. Why? 
Why? Because nothing sets forth the character of God like the cross. Because there at the cross and our salvation, you see God's love. How he could ever love us. You see his grace. You see his mercy. Oh, you see his holiness. You see his wrath against sin when his own son bore our sins and his own body to the tree. Oh, you see his person in his greatest revelation at Calvary. Ah, but then because of the cost, because of the cost, Calvary cost God. I love a story I heard many years ago. A young man was brought up in the congregation. He went to university, came under the effect of ungodly lecturers, and he came back and he said to his minister, do you think there's life on other planets? No. But pastor, God has created many planets. Do you not think there's life on them? Not as we know it, no. But pastor, why did God go to all that trouble to create trillions of stars and planets? You know what the pastor said? What trouble? What trouble? It didn't cost God anything to create the world. Work of his fingertips. He just spoke. And this mighty universe and the scientists tell us, if you listen carefully, they find more and more trillions of stars when they get more powerful telescopes. He just spoke. Ah, but have you ever thought about this? When he saved your soul, believer, to save your soul, it cost God the Father to give his own beloved Son to the miseries of this life, as our catechism puts it. For he came to live that life you could never live, a life of holiness. And there on the middle tree, it costs God the Son to bear our sins. And oh, how we need to pray that God will teach us to help us to understand it and take it in what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. You see, it wasn't just the physical sufferings. Some people look at pictures, and I, of course, don't like them of the cross, and they get all emotional. Listen, 30,000 other Jewish men were crucified, history says. All of those deaths were cruel. Our Savior's death was unique. He suffered as no one ever suffered. Because in those hours of darkness, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christian, you can say this morning, in those hours of darkness, he bore what it would be like for me to suffer in hell what I deserved, the wrath of God that was my due, it fell upon him. That's why we're remembering the Lord's table and remembering his death at the bread and the wine. Think of the cost the Savior paid. And when we think about the character of God in salvation and the cost of God it was to him to save us. And you think of the consequences. I don't start preaching Ephesians 1. But you think we're not only saved, we're not only forgiven from our sins, we're accepted by God, we're adopted, we are we're redeemed, we've been given an inheritance. Oh, the wonderful consequences. Ah, but look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Here's another way to glorify God. Is why I read on then. When you unto him be glory, how do I glorify him? Well, I therefore, this is what you do, I therefore. The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, your calling. You've been called into this congregation. 
You've been called by the gospel, called to Christ, called out of the world. Well, live like it. That's what Paul is saying. Live like it. You say you want to give God glory? Give him glory by the way you live. It's practical. It's practical how you live in day-to-day life. And he's going to go on in chapter 5 and 6 and he's going to say, here's how you live and what you speak about and your behavior, your integrity of life. That him that stole, steal no more and so on, it says. But your generosity and integrity. And then he'll speak to husbands, wives, fathers. And yes, children, boys and girls here. There's a message for you. You know, when Paul wrote to that congregation, that church, the boys and girls were mentioned too. Who loved the Lord? There'd be a message for you in chapter 6. Sometimes I hear, and it's great to see so many young people here. And sometimes we say, the youth are the church of tomorrow. Mm. Partly true. You're also the church of today. (laughs) You're part of the congregation here. And there's a word for the children as well. But in chapter 4, here's how you behave as a member of the church, in the church, in the gathering of the Lord's people, in the congregation. That's why here, if you look at it just very quickly, in verse 3, What are you to do to glorify God? You're to remember your unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. You don't make the unity. It's God puts us in his spiritual building as he wills. But then we're to guard that unity. And it's the unity of the Spirit of God. It's not false unity like the World Council of Churches and all that nonsense, ecumenical. No, it's the Spirit of God of those who are truly redeemed. And notice the words 1 and verse 4. One body, one spirit. You'll have it all down there. We're one. Always remember, believer, we're one because we've all received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He comes into our life when we're saved. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none of His. Ah, but... Remember your unity, but verse 7, recognize your diversity. Unto every one of us is given grace. Now, that isn't talking about saving grace. Actually, it's a parallel passage, if you would read on in the chapter. It's talking about spiritual gifts, the grace of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 is a chapter, Romans 12. What it means is this. Believer, when you were saved... Holy Spirit come into your life, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he also came and gave you a special gift. You remember this congregation. You have a special spiritual gift that God has given to you. Not a natural talent, a spiritual gift. And God has given it to you, not for your own enjoyment, but to profit the whole congregation, your brothers and sisters, that the church will grow. You read chapter 4. Maybe there's someone here who hasn't heard this before and you're saying, well, I'm not a significant member of this church. I, I'm just insignificant. No, you're not. Don't ever say that again. That's not right. Every member, God has no ungifted children. God has no ungifted children. Now, there's all kinds of gifts. There's speaking gifts. They're more public. There are Gifts of administration, gifts of helps, gifts of encouragements. Maybe you say, well, I'm not sure what my gift is. Well, just do what you can as the Lord opens doors. But then, no matter what the gift is, it's not anything to do with us. It's the Holy Spirit gives the gift. The gift. I think of the gift of encouragement, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
great preacher in London, he said this at the end of his ministry. On a cold winter's night in London, and there were steps going up to Westminster Chapel, he said, when I came out to the pulpit and I saw some elderly widows, some of them on sticks make difficult to walk, and I saw them there making their way through the rain and the storm and up those steps, and there they were sitting in the congregation on a cold winter's night. You'll never know the encouragement that was to my soul. Those ladies have the gift of encouragement. Just by the way, some people think they've been given the gift of criticism. <laughs> that's not a gift, that's a problem. All right, you'll not find it in one of the list of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, but here's one, something else too. And I think of the, thank God for the workers in this church. I've just been learning of some of the many works, the children's work, the bus team going out, the helping here on the Lord's Day, whatever it is, whether the media team getting ready, even been handed the, what's that, have it here, the mic. There's all little gifts. We can all do something. Do it all for Jesus, as the hymn says. There's so many gifts to do. But here's something, respond with maturity. The graces of the Spirit. Look at verse 3. You're to keep. You're to keep. You're to guard this unity. You're to guard it. You see, sometimes our feelings will get hurt. But look what we're to do as believers. In verse 2, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. This is maturity. I'll just give you three very quickly because of time. Forbearing. What does that mean? Forbearing means to put up with. You ever been out walking and we this domain or park and uh, mire and sometimes people have big dogs. You imagine a big Rottweiler <laughs> and you're out ready. But then you notice they've got us on a leash and they're holding it back. That's exactly what that word means. That person has hurt me, that person, I'm going to get at them. But you don't. For the sake of unity, for the sake of the glory of the Lord, you'll say, I'm not going to do it. You forbear. You forbear. Uh, just very quickly, there's a, there's a great writer, Jock Troop. I trust you've all got his book, Fair Sunshine. It's a book of the history of the Covenanters. Lovely book. But he wrote a book. He was a missionary. And he told the story of two men missionaries were working together. And you see, missionaries aren't perfect. Because we're a missionary sometimes. But one of them liked the window open. The other one liked the windows closed. And it got into a row. You wouldn't believe that, would you? Or you know whether the windows should be opened or not. So he says, too cold, there's a draft. You'll be giving me pneumonia. The other one says, no, no, I want the window open because I've sinus. My sinus will get worse if you don't open that window. And they fell out over it and they were speaking to each other sharply. And when they both went to pray that night, Holy Spirit convicted them. I shouldn't have spoken like that to my brother. Both of them were convicted. And Jack Troop tells how they both came out and they met in one of the rooms and one of them says, look, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have spoken sharply about keeping the window closed. The other one, look, I shouldn't have spoken like that about keeping the window open. And the one said, look, would you forgive me? You can have the window open. The other one says, no, no, I forgive you. You can have it closed. So he never said in the book who won or what happened or where they kept it open when. But simple things can happen. You see, this is practical. Christianity is practical. That's what Paul's saying. To keep the unity, forbearing. In verse 15, it's one word, speaking the truth in love. How we speak about one another and to one another. 
That's so important. F.B. Marr said, I'd rather handle live electricity than speak disparagingly of one of God's people. I'll just give you one more, verse 32, chapter 4, forgiving one another. Ah, but you don't know what they've done to me. I don't misunderstand. They did it deliberately. You don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. How can I ever forgive them? Look at verse 32. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. doesn't mean you'll forget. You can't turn a switch in your head and say, I'll never remember that. Of course you'll remember. But you say, God helping me, I'll not treat them in a wrong way. I'll treat them as God and Christ, for Christ's sake, treated me. That's maturity. Well, when we're doing these things, what'll happen? What'll happen? Glory to the Lord. He will be glorified. And therefore, at this time, my message today is, in everything that takes place in the congregation, every gathering, every children's meeting, youth meeting, every session, committee, whatever it is, every open-air meeting, unto him be glory. Unto him be glory. That's the message. And, of course, if you're not saved, thank God you can be saved. You're not part. It's great you come. A lot of you I don't know. It's great you come along to the services. But you're not part of the true church here. You have to be born again. You have to be saved. You're still dead in sins and trespasses. Call upon the Lord this morning. And know this greatest privilege of being in his church. Let us pray together, please. Our Father in heaven, we pray, even as we think of this chapter 4, and the responsibilities of being in a local church, that you enable each one of us to have that forbearance and our speaking and our forgiving. We pray that God helping us that we can each say, I'll be the church member ought to be for the glory of God, and I will seek to safeguard the unity of the church, and I'll share the responsibility of the church, and I'll serve in its ministry, and I'll support the testimony of the church, so that the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray. Remember those who must leave now, continue with us around the Lord's table, we ask in our Saviour's name. Amen.